0: This is the Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or faint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing one million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings and welcome back, everybody. Uh, my name is Piotr, and this is The Global Gambit and this time the gambit is going sort of all over the place because my guest today uh is is Frank Duster, uh who uh, someone i actually had the pleasure of meeting well we were talking about it just before we went on air but uh 16 years ago uh, as a little kid um although um sort of uh, i probably haven't matured much since so anyway um frank Deuster is someone who you may have heard um referenced in uh reference to uh, crisis group because he's the co-chair and he's also the founder of Accesso. um uh for, Remind me how to pronounce it, Frank. Your main, your my, main area of uh, focus, your business. Uh, what's the company called? Oh,
1: purifying, uh, financial Financial
0: fiori financial there you go everyone so uh, follow frank for that information not me because I, c- I can't even pronounce the yeah. name um but frank we've got quite a wide ranging conversation. So so uh, just to start off uh, as of today we've had the dollar um the the, the uh, russian you know response to the energy price cap um by the europeans uh to cut oil production by half a million barrels a day so could you take us through a little bit what you think about that uh and then we can maybe broaden out into the ukrainian conflict a little bit more
1: yeah you know i i think you know this this cut of this 5% cut of production, um, I think is intended to put more pressure on the West, you know, uh, increase oil prices or at least maintain a higher level of oil prices, which is obviously hurting the West, hurting the entire planet for, for that matter with higher energy prices, which feed into the inflation problem that we already have. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's just another tactical move in in this overall uh, conflict between um Russia and the West and uh, with Ukraine uh, with Ukraine in the middle. So, uh whether it's going to really change the trajectory of this conflict I, I you know I I don't really think so I think Russia is, you know, it's obviously been hurt by the sanctions, but it's, you know, it's maintaining its own, it's not hasn't collapsed, you know, there's still uh the war is still somewhat popular throughout Russia and mm-hmm. so I don't know all of these moves, these incremental moves by the West and by Russia over this conflict uh, will continue until one side or the other determines that they've accomplished as much as they're going to accomplish on the battlefield. Um, but uh, And only then will they be ready for some form of peace talks. And at this point in time, that's just not happening. Now, both sides think they have still um, to be made in on the battlefield, and uh, I suspect this is going to go on a lot longer.
0: So you you think it's more of a case of war of attrition or even potentially a frozen conflict like we we could see in South Korea North Korea kind of DMZ vibes because uh, yeah, th- these are some of the I, analysts views I, I've seen I,
1: Yeah, I hope not. I I hope that at the, at, at the most it's just a a um uh, a war of attrition that at some point either side both sides will get tired of and will want to engage in some form of peace negotiations because um and at the end of the day, these things never benefit anyone. Mm-hmm. um all they do is harm economies, harm harm the population. It's you know war war is not you know it should never be intended to be a long term thing. so um, I would hope that at some point, Russia or Ukraine and the West determine that it's time to negotiate and the negotiation will be difficult because of what each side wants and so but i think the bigger picture is that the west is seeing this as a means to weaken russia and mm-hmm. so that generally doesn't bode well for ending the conflict but um that's where we're at
0: well, the, the, I mean, I think that's a fair point And something that I always think about is this, um, diametrically opposed stances that the two sides now have. Uh, I mean, you know, Russia really wants to just have a puppet state, a bit of a vassal state. I think it, a, a Belarus 2.0, whilst I think that the, uh, well, the Ukrainians want sovereignty completely. But my point is, where do you, do we, what do we force the, the Ukrainians to accept that the partial bit of land that they've lost is just, that's it. Or they, they go, okay, if Russia, if you give back, the mainland Ukraine, Russia keeps Crimea. Like how do we negotiate with this when the Ukrainians are clearly wanting to fight no matter what, just for their sovereignty? You know, I think it's a difficult one to tell the Ukrainians. It is it is,
1: it is a difficult one. And I think you've answered your own question. I just don't think that uh, Ukraine is willing to give up territory in the way that Russia wants. Um, Russia is determined not to go to end this without a win. Mm. Putin can't afford to, you know, end this conflict without Showing his people that uh, that there was something gained out of all of this suffering, so I, I just think that it's going to continue. And I think that the West believes—it's my opinion—that the West believes that this is the, the longer this lasts, the more that uh, Russia is weakened. Uh, now, mind you, things could change politically um, in the West. Um, you know, we have a an election coming up in the United States in 2024 um and if uh, a different administration comes in they may have a different view about supporting ukraine endlessly uh without finding some 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 end to this so anything can happen the thing about wars they're unpredictable and they tend to escalate before the end so um that's the unfortunate
0: uh, situation we're in. Yeah, no, I, I so this leads me to sort of the slightly broader dynamics between, you know, should we call them the autocratic alliance or axis. Um in that, you know, despite uh, the sanctions and despite the heavy-handed response by uh, many western countries, even Singapore and and um, Switzerland, you know, notably usually quite neutral or cooperative when it comes to implementing sanctions. Uh, Russia's economy still grown. By 0.3 yes. percent, according to Bob. Can, can you unpack as to why you think that is? Is this something to do with China's relationship, India buying energy from Russia? Yeah, how much well, you this? know,
1: as, as you know, uh, most of Russia's economy is based on natural resources, and you know, and there's a <laughs> there's a very strong demand for both energy and metals, um, and food and grain. Um, mm. So I think that um, you know, when you look at countries like India and how they feel about maintaining relationships with with Russia through all of this you know they they they're looking after their own self-interest and so i think that as long as there's a demand for energy metals food russia's economy will be propped up and you know with the price which would happened with the energy prices um, i i suspect those energy prices are going to be remain elevated for quite a long long time and that benefits russia and the russian economy so i think russia's weathering the storm that's finding Ways to trade with other countries that that, you know are outside the sanctions, and um, it's it's hanging in there. And I don't think that that's going to change. I I think that the West's efforts to weaken Russia have its limits, and Russia will continue to sell to China, to India, trade with Turkey, you know, whatever it needs to do. Um, So, um, yeah, I don't think that uh, it's any that the economy is in any danger of completely collapsing. Which was, I think, what the
0: West hoped with all of these sanctions. Well, I th- yeah, I, I think it's illustrated that you know uh, the the sanctions against like Iran, right? are it's difficult to take down a, a, a country like Iran, which is quite well positioned. But then you try and do that with Russia; it's it's tough. And uh, I, I tough. think I think one of the things I'm curious about that then from the Western ends is what does this mean for sanctions? Can you see this maybe being a bit of a reevaluation of their overextension because they are overutilized, like so yeah. much the reliance
1: on them. Yeah, and do they, you know, when you look at the history of uh, the the effects of sanctions over the years, they tend to do two things. They embolden the uh, incumbent governments to Mm. be more repressive um, and to blame foreign powers for the ills of of the population, and they usually only hurt the population. You know, look at the sanctions against Venezuela. I mean, that's a, a prime example of how sanctions, mind you, along with Mismanagement of the economy by 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 uh, Maduro's government, but but still, sanctions should be limited, very targeted. When you you know when you enact complete sanctions and you use them all the time, they kind of lose their effect, in my opinion, and that's been proven over over the years that sanctions don't always work, and sometimes they. Actually work against your interests, you know against the interests of the countries that are imposing the sanctions. So as you can see by what's happened, so you look at the irony of what's happening with these sanctions against Russia, so what's happened? Energy prices, food prices, everything's gone up. Who gets hurt? the West, the global South. And so you know you you this you know the the inflationary pressures caused by the Ukraine war i mean that added a lot to the inflation numbers so i think that that you know it some things backfire and then you get these kind of crazy scenarios where russia sells it's all to saudi arabia who in turn sells it to the west i mean it's, you know you get that sort of craziness happening and and on oh, the other one that i wrote about recently was you know with you know the um net zero policy that europe uh, had mm-hmm. you know been following for many years and and its reliance on russian natural gas not developing its own supplies domestically and from other countries relying completely on russia and now they're importing lng from the us which produces it from shale which they were dead against doing on their own in their own territory so you have all these crazy things going on so who's benefiting the us is benefiting by selling lng to europe um it's uncertain who blew up that Nord Stream 2 pipeline, although, you know, people are a suspect that it might have been the U.S. Wow, um, wow. It's, it's hard to tell. But uh, anyway, so I think that, you know, these sanctions also had unintended consequences. And that's one of the things that you're seeing with, with, with the costs, you know, with inflation, worldwide inflation.
0: So a lot, I think, very pertinent. And, and, you know, I, I think the best case or study of when sanctions have worked is the apartheid government in South Africa, right? They were used over a long time and it did ultimately result in the regime change or the intended consequences eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Liberia in the late nineties, two thousands is another good example, but they were used as part of a combination of other policy tools.
1: And to that was, point- but you know, but, but that was one country isolated from the world okay and although they did have relationships with Russia but now you've got in the Russian situation mm. what we're seeing is a splintering of you know countries uh, trade blocks and you know, you're seeing a bifurcation or a multipolar world of trade blocks being developed and so Russia can trade within a a certain trade block and not need to rely completely on the west for selling its goods so, I think that you know it's a little bit different with with the Russian situation now that you've got China's rising power, you've got the BRICS exerting their own uh, autonomy and wanting you know to 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 have a you know separate power base to the west non-aligned with 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 anybody the West or Russia or China and so it's a different world we live in now. it's not not the sort of world we lived in you know thirty forty years ago.
0: No, I, I think that's very um, pertinent, as I say, and, and 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 that leads me. It's almost like you knew what I was going to lead to. But um, what um, about this um, this alternative financial model, right? So, just a, as a, a premise to my to my question, which is that you know. Uh, I've been reading a couple of reports about the potential of Venezuela's sanctions, since you mentioned them actually being reduced, um, or some degree of sanctions relief, uh, because, you know, now they represent the lesser of two evils versus, uh, the Kremlin, um, which would be kind of bizarre that the U.S., the Europeans just normalise relations with, um, with Venezuela, you know, classic real politique. Um, but then, you know, they've also been interested in BRICS. Um, so has Argentina, Iran. Um, So, how do you see the BRICS or any of these alternative financial models? Because for me, mm-hmm. it, the BRICS isn't very even. It's China and others for me, Um, and I do mm-hmm. think it's a little bit overhyped at the moment. Because mm-hmm. SIPS, this alternative to SWIFT, does about thirteen thousand transactions versus SWIFT, which is about forty-two million a day. Yeah. So it's still a long way to go. Um mm-hmm. do, do you not think that we're a little bit carried away uh with the no, potential I, I, no, I think China does?
1: Uh, no, I honestly believe that there's a movement afoot um, by the BRICS Plus. It's not just the BRICS, mm-hmm. but it's the BRICS Plus. You got, you know, you got Saudi Arabia in there also now, and, um, and Turkey, and e- countries like Egypt and and uh, others that want to combine their uh, uh, their economic power. And there's talk of a settlement currency that it's not reliant on the U.S. dollar system. Right, um, I think that that is well in play, okay? How long it will take to actually develop and implement is you know anybody's guess, but there's definitely there are definitely movements afoot to create alternative trading currencies to the u s dollar to get out outside of the swift system to get outside the sanctions um and to get outside the dominance and homogeny of the u s dollar which causes all sorts of issues for the global South in terms of the debt service. Uh, in terms of importing, in you know, inflation, uh, because commodities are priced in U.S. dollars, and as you know, if the U.S. dollar is strong, then you know they, they, it's the it's the global south that is hurt. So I think there's definitely, and you can see all these conversations taking place about cro- cross-border settlement currencies. China's making those noises and testing a digital cross-border currency. You know, you got Brazil and Argentina now talking about a South American euro-style common currency. Um, There are all sorts of other Chinese yuan transactions to buy oil, Saudi Arabia willing to do it, which may spell the end of the petrodollar dominance. So you have all of these things taking place, you know, the expansion of the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization with other states Mm -hmm. to create an Asian super state, a a trading bloc. So I think that that movement is well in place, and it will evolve. And the U.S., And the West may not like it, but it will happen. So you may have a a bifurcation of the global monetary system or multiple currency blocks. It remains to be seen how this all plays out.
0: So you're firmly in the camp of regionalism. Or in this idea that globalization is not really happening anymore to the extent it was, say, when the US was the only hegemonic power. So now we have regional blocks based on, uh, certain entities like Latin America led by, say, Brazil, one of the BRICs, and then China with this SCO. But what, what in that case does the Western allies do to uh, counterbalance or to at least, um, uh, adapt? You can't prevent it, obviously. Um, at least not yet,
1: but. Well, they can um, try and prevent it they can try and prevent it. I don't think they'll be successful because when you think about 80% of the world's population is, you know, the global Mm -hmm. South and the East, you know, if they want to change uh, they will get it eventually. Um, So how does the U S and the West adapt? (laughs) That's a tough one. I've got my own theories about where it's all heading, but, you know, I think with the mismanagement of monetary policy, with the, uh, with the, increasing debt loads of the Western countries, mm-hmm. including the US, they have very little room to maneuver to prevent a migration to different trading currencies. I, I just think that that for a whole host of reasons, like the ones I mentioned earlier about the importing of inflation, the servicing of US dollar debt by poorer nations, all of these things come into play. And I think that that will... Allow that change to take place over time, and how it formulates. I, I you know, I can, I have a number of different theories, but you know, I don't think anyone knows yet. But there's definitely interest by over eighty percent of the world's population to go in that direction. So it will happen at some point, and the the U.S. and Europe and Japan will have to adapt. And I think it will mean uh, a period of lower growth and uh, probably higher inflation in the West because it's not the West that produces the commodities that are going to be needed. It's the East and the global South. And so it's going to be problematic. And I think a lower standard of living is going to be imposed on the West uh, over time. And that's just the way that, you know, the world evolves. (laughs) And that that brings other issues, you know, of, of social issues that, you know, inspire populist movements and what have you. So, you know, I think we're in a, in a world of influx, it's fragile. Lots of changes are taking place, and I think that it's a it's a very dangerous time for the world.
0: Well, I've read a few pieces, and and sort of I wasn't around, but I'm getting the sense of sort of stagflation um, feelings of the seventies, right? Uh, at yeah. least for some years uh, to come, um, at least in certain Western markets. And um, but the thing about China, just to highlight that particularly for a second, is they do have a demographic situation now and the public health mm-hmm. pressure is, is definitely there um mm-hmm. you know Xi's been doing a lot of shuttle diplomacy flying around to try and you know be like oh hey you know check out us uh, Saudi Arabia and stuff so do you not that fa- feel that China does have a fair few of its own systemic problems that are going mm-hmm. to undermine its desire ability or capacity to to i definitely don't think this is the century of the dragon anymore um not that i ever did but sort of you know this 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 idea that China's really going to be able to take it to the united states and uh, become the equal playing footer I'm not, I'm not so sure i think they've got a lot of challenges and india's relationship with them is is pretty terrible uh mm-hmm. russia and china is as i say a marriage of convenience in many ways what happens if mm-hmm. china starts exploring the ice caps in china russia's backyard mm-hmm. uh, how much do security concerns mm-hmm. begin to mitigate economic in interests between these countries you know because mm-hmm. i think the one mm-hmm. thing the west has is ideals and values that what make them work together
1: yeah but the west has its own problems too you know the west is um uh Over indebted, it's had a disastrous monetary policy that you can't unwind. And I've been saying this for the last 13 years that it will be impossible to unwind the damage that they did by expanding the uh, central bank uh, balance sheets. Mm. That's you can't unwind, especially when debt has doubled over the last decade globally. Um, So everybody's got problems, Um, but I think you're going to see, you know, you're going to continue to see these loosely aligned relationships emerge around the world and that, uh, you know, the U.S. global homogeny that was envisioned back in the early 90s is just, it's over. And so how it all plays out, you threw out so many possibilities in your your lead-up to this question, and, (laughs) you know, and there's probably dozens you've left out because no one has a crystal ball. And the thing that I've always learned about geopolitics and history is that, you know, so many things are unpredictable, and so many things can happen that have knock-on effects that you know create all sorts of other social and, and, and geopolitical issues. So I don't know. I just see this sort of split taking place. You know the 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 uh, the type of global system that we we thought we were getting accustomed to is is over. I mm-hmm. think it's over, and um, the U.S. does not have the economic might latitude to it still has the military might and latitude to 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 enforce its 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 views on the world but it's 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 definitely weakening and china is russia uh, is rising its military might is rising um and uh and then you have all these other issues around the world with russia and iran those are both issues that are not going to go away anytime soon so i don't know i just i i still think that it's it's a time um, it's a dangerous time because if you think throughout history, when is the last time that a power shift has taken place from one global economic and imp- military power to another without a conflict? Last time was the UK to the US, and um, you know that happened peacefully. But you know if you look throughout history, it usually doesn't happen peacefully, and that's what worries me the most: is, is global conflict over the shifting of power from one region to the to another
0: well i've hosted many a conversation with people about taiwan and um the south china sea because i feel that that's the most likely area for a potential hot war um i I don't want to go into that because that's not really what we we want to talk about i think but um I, i think your point about the economic forecasting for the future is, is, is particularly like for me, right? As a, as a young person who's trying to establish and get started in certain ways, you know, we've had a tough time with COVID. We've had a, a, a decade of austerity in some places. I mean, the UK, wonderful joy of added Brexit, you know, only advanced economy set to decline this year or contract rather. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems for young people trying to, well, establish themselves. Cost of living is just ridiculous. How do you, I don't know. How do you recommend people to sort of, I don't know, g- adjust to this on a more sort of individual basis? Because it's, um, you know, which countries can you see being appealing in the future, you know, next short to medium term? You know, like, uh, some people have posited, uh, Turkey or Azerbaijan. Cause whilst it's relatively not great economically, they're still doing better than many other countries, Saudi Arabia. Well. Finding opportunities, be it investment yeah. or you know, um, yeah, career building.
1: I think uh, you have countries like Saudi Arabia that are you know are now opening their doors to foreign investment and courting the global global money to come its way. You know, with s- some progressive movement and 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 in society, so that's happening. And Saudi Arabia certainly has the muscle to continue to do that financial mu- muscle. Um, <clears throat> that's a lot of. A lot of corporations and uh, are, are looking Saudi Arabia um, for both investment and, and to invest in. Um, so that might be interesting. I live in Canada. I think Canada is a great place. Um, we have a still no, a fan of a, ju-
0: it's still a fan of Trudeau. Then um, no, it's not, it's not about being a fan of anybody. <laughs> I did.
1: No, I, listen, I'm apolitical when it comes to Canadian politics. Um, but I, I, I believe that we're still living. We live in a in a in a just country that still you know has quiet approach to you know to exerting its power and and and, and where people live in reasonable harmony <laughs> um and it, which is very different to what's happening south of the border here so i think that um you know canada is a very very large country with a very very small population so mm-hmm. that always mm-hmm. helps too you know it's easier to manage a smaller population as you see in the Scandinavian countries than it is in larger populations. So so, so I think, um, um, I don't know, as far as investing, i I, I <laughs> playing it very defensively right now. Like I just think that there's so much uncertainty that I look at, you know, where people should put their investments these days and it's, you know, I'm, I, I, cash is important. Gold is important because you don't know what's going to happen. Gold at least keeps a store of value. Um, you know, bonds are are very problematic if you believe that inflation will continue, as I believe it will. It may come down a bit now, but I don't think it's going away. Mm. I think we're going to, mm. for a decade of inflation, uh, you know, up and down, much like it. Uh, it At what, le- what
0: level, though? Like sustained above targets or much? You know, I don't know, you
1: know five, six percent, you know, instead oh, okay. of nine, ten percent, but, you know, still higher than two percent. and which has always been, you know, the goal uh, by central banks. Um, So I think, you know, I stay away from bonds. Uh, The stock markets in the U.S. are overpriced still. I think even though they came down quite a bit last year, I think they're grossly overpriced and they have a long way to go. I think we're in a secular bear market. I think there are great opportunities outside of uh, the U.S. to invest in. I believe in that we're going to be in a in a decade of where commodities are going to be very popular uh needed and there's going to be a shortage of commodities and that's going to be made more problematic because of you know how trade has um you know basically it's it's, it's less trading taking place you're going to have supply chain issues uh with commodities and, and commodities will be used as uh something that is critical for economies and they're going to a lot of economies will will uh will come together to hoard the commodities that they need. So there'll be less trade. So that means the price commodities will go up. So I think investing in the global miners, you know, that pay amazing dividends. And I think we'll have great cash flow for the next few years. I think that, you know, energy stocks, I think energies will remain elevated for a long period of time. There's been very, there's it's been a sector, that's, there's been very little investment uh put in over the last decade or so. So it's under invested. So that means there's going to be shortages there. And so I think, you know, there are places to invest. Um, but again, I think uh, you have to be very diversified and play it very defensively because you don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea. Whether you get a global depression and or or hyperinflation, the two extremes, right? Or some uh, stuff in the middle, you just don't know. And so I, I think because of all the uncertainty, you just got to stay defensive and, and diversified. So that, I think
0: that's um, well, wise for one, but um, I've got a couple last couple of questions that I'm curious for your take on. One is this growing, you know, area of climate risk, transnational issues and esg principles and this sort of thing that we're seeing increasingly driven so you mentioned energy um but what about the component of esg and then i've got a final question on crypto because i know how much you love that
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh well i think esg was uh heavily hyped everywhere and i think the reality that are now coming to light because of the ukraine war are um getting people to rethink how dedicated they are to ESG and how more, what might be more important in the short term might be securing energy supplies from wherever they come, including coal. Um, so um, I think that the climate change problem is not going away, but I think you you still have to continuously invest in renewables. I think, and I wrote an article uh, on this about the uh, European energy crisis a few months back. Hmm. And my conclusion was that Europe needs to continue to focus on building its renewables, you know, wind and solar and what have you and hydrogen and other things. Um, But at the same time, it can't be stupid about it. It has to develop its own gas, natural gas reserves. And there are plenty of opportunities on and offshore Europe to do that. They just haven't been invested in from you know for a long long time because of the zero net policy um and so I think that uh that you got to work both in parallel but you can't be you can't completely abandon fossil fuels until you have a replacement in other words you're just shooting yourself in the foot and I no, think I, that I Europe was caught off guard with the Ukraine war and then they it was as I put it a self-inflicted wound they should have seen this coming you know 10 years ago and they didn't. And he didn't prepare for
0: it. Well, the over-dependency of Germany on Russian gas. Uh, exactly.
1: That's my. That was my main that, point.
0: Your main point, yeah. Um, I mean, even the the Greek-Turkish tensions in the East Med are having impacts on the potential access to the reserves down there. I think, and uh, I mean, just this whole—you uh, know my, Sergei's probably mentioned it to you in the past, but they sort of instilled fear in certain parts of the West about the use of nuclear when it's such an important component to any I know. transition.
1: And I I agree. I think nuclear is is also, a a, uh, as we're working towards other renewables like wind and solar, and hopefully someday fusion, um, Mm. as we work towards those things, uh, nuclear fission still plays a role and should play a role. And I think that, you know, look at France. France is, you know, 75% of the energy needs come from nuclear. I mean, and they've done it quite successfully. So I think that that uh, nuclear does play a role.
0: For sure. Um last question then, Frank, is uh As I said, I'm just curious, we had in late last year this uh, scandal with FTX, SBF. not going to go into those details, but more broadly, you know, central bank digital currencies, we've seen just the role of crypto really gain traction because of the pandemic and other things. And I know you firmly, as you mentioned, are, you know, old school or uh, in the area of, you know, gold and uh, you'll remain heavily, like Sergey and others, skeptical of crypto, why Why is that? Do you see it having any potential at all with the CBDCs, or is it all just hot air like the Chinese balloon and we should okay, move on? Okay, well, the
1: first thing you have to do <laughs> is differentiate between two things, okay? Because they're very different things with different agendas. There's crypto over here, which is which was designed to be a decentralized way of, of monetary system, tokens, <clears throat> and then you got uh, central bank digital currencies. They're very different things. And they have, And I think what I've said all along, and I said it a couple of years ago in a debate on, on Bitcoin specifically, that as all governments, probably 114 countries right now developing their own central bank digital currencies in some form or another, exploring, developing, what have you, including the U.S., okay? Um, I firmly believe that those will eventually be implemented by the world at large. We're going digital with currencies, which has other implications about how government will intrude in your life. But I won't get into that. That's separate. But, the, but w- w- what I've been saying all along is when central banks develop their own digital currencies, it's my opinion that they're going to go out of their way to eliminate the crypto decentralized market, including Bitcoin. And that's what my biggest fear about Bitcoin and why I've never invested in Bitcoin is because I believe eventually... Probably by a thousand cuts, there'll be a death by a thousand cuts, governments will clamp down on cryptocurrencies and eliminate them and take control of the digital currency world. That's my biggest concern uh, about cryptocurrencies. The other part of it is that most of them are just gambling tokens. This is like a casino mentality. I don't know how many cryptocurrencies still exist. But it's over 10,000, I can't remember, but these are they're scams. They're for gamblers. This is not about investment. And I think 99% of them will disappear off the face of the earth at some point. They're all going to go to zero. I always say crypto is where money goes to die eventually. And that's what's going to, I think it's going to happen. Uh, whether Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum survive, it's hard to tell. But I think if they ever become a threat to national currencies, and especially when we go digital, they're, they're going to get eliminated. It's just why? Why would any government want compete a competing currency? They never have. They never will. That's just no, the I, way no, they're
0: going. I think so. Um, I've never done anything with crypto. I, I think Ethereum offers the most interesting version. Bitcoin's too tainted. I think now, but um, when it comes to these, you know, the point that people always talk about is the decentralization aspect of. of Cryptocurrencies, but it's like, guys, the trading platforms, the FTX yeah. was not decentralized. It's a centralized, like, you can't have a fully decentralized system because it doesn't, it can't work. It has to apply it, to it regulation. A,
1: it doesn't have a function if it's yeah. not centralized. You know, it can't, like, yeah. you can't create. that was called Bitcoin, others like, th- this is an asset class in desperate search for a purpose. It doesn't, have, it's been touted to, you know, it was first going to be a transaction currency, then it was going to be a store of value. The value they, yeah. they just keep adding all these things, then going, it's it's in search for a purpose. In the meantime, people use it to make money. You buy and you sell. You hope to make money. People have looked at these things as a means of getting rich quick, which always, in my experience, in financial markets, always means that it does the exact opposite. It's this, <laughs> and it's always the small investor that gets completely buried because the, the hedge funds they they're momentum players they played it on the way up and most of them that were touting it including elon musk and all of these guys they sold it on the way up they don't have it anymore so it's a little guy that's holding waiting for it to you know go to half a million a coin and those some some of these maxis tout you know and, the, and i just find the whole thing ridiculous
0: so should i ask you about elon musk now um frank it's been a pleasure thank you very much for your for your time uh, is there any departing uh, words of love um uh, suggestion encouragement you'd like to leave uh, everybody with
1: i think that you know listen <laughs> i i have i'm i'm of two minds and i've been accused of this by others i am in in one sense an optimist um my whole life has been about creating companies and new ventures new ideas my new My approach to philanthropy has been about, you know, finding ways to solve big problems, always with an optimistic lens. Then the other part of my brain, I look at the world and I study history and I see where we're heading and I'm very pessimistic. You know, (laughs) I have a very pessimistic view about where we're heading and and I see all the bad that could happen. And I'm finding it very difficult to, to to bring the two together to try and figure out where we're heading. So the best I can tell you is just, you know, you always have to be optimistic. Otherwise, you know, you might as well curl up and die because you, you have to have optimism that problems will resolve. And I was and I, I mentor a lot of young kids and I've been mentoring school kids for 25 years now. And I always say to them, you know, when people tell you you're living in a world that's, you know, that's problematic, that's, you know, that why bring a child into the world today and all these things because it's so bad, bad. Think about your parents. So I think about my parents and I think about their parents. Each of them saw the world the same way. You think my parents grew up in the Depression in World War II. And, you know, talk about bad, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, and we continue as as as, as a species to move forward and, you know, technology advances and, you know, medicine and all these things are getting better. But I, I, I worry that we're ending up in a, that we're heading towards a world where you have the haves and the have nots, you know, and, and that problem is going to continue because of AI automation, AI, all of the things that are taking place are going to create social issues that we still have to figure out, you know, how do we live in a world of eight billion people where everything's automated or run with AI? Uh, you know, what happens to jobs? You know, and uh, I just don't know what the answer to that is. But uh, I'm sure that you know, humanity's gone through different cycles of having these kind of problems, and we always seem to come through. So, you know, you got to keep your chin up and just hope for the best. <laughs>
0: doing that it might not work with my speaker at the moment but um i appreciate that um Mm -hmm. uh, you've just opened a can of worms with ai now which i want to talk about but um so thanks for doing that um Mm -hmm. but no it's been a it's been a pleasure uh frank juice to everyone uh if you enjoyed the video then please subscribe hit the like button share your comments if you disagree or agree with frank and um but how could you disagree to be honest um and uh and see you in the next episode take care everyone you were listening to the global gambit we hope you enjoyed this episode If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests, get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host, Piotta. But until next time...
1: This is The Global Gambit.